Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most electrifying must-listen-to podcast in sports entertainment. I am your host, Damian Ellinghouse, accompanied as always by good friend and lover of Monday Night Raw, Ryan Doyle. Are you really rolled in there like a roiling dervish? A roiling dervish indeed. Good sir, how are we? Well, I'm quite well. Uh, week six, seven in lockdown, but uh, we're getting there. Six, seven, fifteen. It's it's forever. Everything is forever. Uh, <laughs> the important thing is that we're here now. Okay, so. Like Ryan said, week 15 into lockdown, society continues to crumble around us. Uh, we've got Monday Night Raw happening. What's going on? What's, uh, are we, there's, they, they pre-taped, right? They did a bunch of pre-tapes. I'm pretty sure this is live now. I know that they had taped a bunch of going to Money in the Bank. I don't know if that's like what they're tapping into or not. Uh, they uh, did like four episodes in once. Yeah, so right now we have um, Money in the Bank qualifying for the women's, and it's uh, Ruby Riot versus Asuka. Oh, can't wait to see how we make Asuka lose this match. I don't know. I mean, I feel like they're not going to push Ruby Riot. No, why? I don't know why, dude. Oh, I know why, because guess who's coming back? Who? Our favorite. Is it, is it Molly Holly again? No, it's uh, Miss Nia Jax. Oh, right, right, <laughs> right, right. Nia Jax, very good. Uh, so uh, here we are, Monday, eight thirty, Monday Night Raw happening. Uh, so I have two special beverages. Well, one isn't that special, but the other one is uh, definitely a little bit special. Uh, so one isn't that interesting. It's uh, got the Golden Monkey by Victory. You know, their Belgian style triple. Uh, with added spice, nine and a half percent alcohol, so it's a it's a hefty boy. Uh, but no, that's not what's interesting here. Um, what I have that's interesting is oh, quite different. No, see what I have is Lover Boy. Ooh, everybody's working for the weekend. Now, Ryan, what do you know about? Uh, Bravo and Bravo Liberties. Nothing. Bravo, Bravo and Bravo Liberties. Bravo, like the 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 network. Bravo mm-hmm. and Bravo Liberties. Bravo celebrities. Do we know a lot? Do we know a little? Oh, like Andy Cohen. Okay, we know Andy Cohen. That's a good start. So Andy Cohen is a uh, fellow deadhead. Lover Boy is the flagship sparkling tea of entrepreneur and star of hit show Summer House, Kyle Cook. Um, they plug it a lot on the show. Me and uh, my fiance are, uh, I don't want to say we're passionate fans, but look, the reality of reality is reality TV and wrestling. I say this all the time. Wrestling is just bloody soap opera. Reality TV is just poorly written soap opera. You know, they go hand in hand. Total Divas, Total Bellas, Miz and Maurice, Miz originally being on The Real World, right? It's a long-storied history that we've got here. I see. Um, This is, it's a sparkling tea. Uh, This is the Black Tea Lemon Kissed with Ginger. It's 4.2% alcohol. It's supposed to be like some sort of a mix of like a White Claw and a Twisted Tea. And it is 
bad. Oh, it's terrible. Huh? Oh, it's real bad. First off, Good, some of them are cool. to rip on. <laughs> First off, some of them are clear and it's supposed to be tea. I don't like that. All right. You're not moonshine. No, thank you. Uh, this one isn't clear, but everything tastes like aspartame. They don't say that there is aspartame in there, um, but there's something. There's something wrong. And in, in the background of all of Summer House are these cases upon cases upon cases. And it's just fucking it's bad. And I don't I, I it's bad. It's bad. It's like that bitter like Diet Coke taste. It is very much like a diet coke. It's like and and it says kissed with ginger, but that no no no. They went heavy with the ginger. They went heavy. It's not with kissed. The it's not kissed. It's not kissed. No kiss. Uh, so that'll be opened up later. I'm gonna I'm gonna drink the gold monkey uh, for now. Uh, you got anything? Hey, uh, it's I get it's Slim Pickens at my house. Um, I have nothing. I'm drinking seltzer. It's also eight thirty on a Monday, and I I'm have just- to listen. You know. <laughs> I, I know we're big on hyping up our favorite beers, which I will, you know me, I will always do, but we, um, I can't drink every day. No, no. <laughs> there's a, there's only room for one of those. Uh, let's, in this let's preach some moderation. Otherwise we're all going to lose our minds. Uh, I'm on week three of quarantine, so I just don't really have a choice. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. I guess I have a, I have a choice, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but I am drinking white rock seltzer, which if I'm correct, is the oldest, uh seltzer manufacturer in these united states look at that you thought ryan just knew about wrestling no my friend he's got a sparkling interest in seltzer as well um is it the raspberry or black cherry i saw red black cherry black Black cherry Cherry. that's a good one black cherry very nice so but uh uh, over the weekend i did i did partake i i found some uh a purple haze okay which is very nice i had some uh Barrier Money, of course. That is my five-star beer from them. Mm-hmm. My favorite. And I also had... Uh, I also had... What was Oh, the Dogfish Head um, Hazy IPA. Okay, I like that. Which is nice. So you've had that before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Real good. I like the... Uh, I think 90 Minutes is probably my favorite Dogfish Head offer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, sure. the, I, I always like a good hazy. You know, nice and... Have nice you ever had like the 120 Minute... I've had it. So actually, it's funny you should say that because over here on my left, on top of my clothes, is a bottle of 120 Minute that a friend of mine gave me for my birthday back in December. Now, yeah. you, can dr- you can drink it whenever you bottle it, but he said if you drink it like right when it gets bottled, it kind of just tastes like whiskey. It's just like very heavy. But oh, the longer- it's so thick. Yeah, <laughs> but it ages in the bottle. So the longer you go without drinking yeah. it, the more interesting it gets. So I'm leaving it until next birthday. Is it true there's a higher one? In 120 minute? Uh yeah. 120 I know is is small batch, but would it shock me if there was like a 240 or whatever? No. I heard like you remember um I don't I don't remember. Remember the episode of Simpsons when Bart and uh Melhouse find a twenty dollar bill and they go to Quickie Mart and they get like the extra uh slushy and it's like they try to just, like stick the, the uh straw <laughs> in it. Yeah. No, it's because oh it's so thick. It just reminds me of that. <laughs> Yeah, um, Dogfish Head to the the brewmaster whose name escapes me right now. He's um, known as like one of the innovators of craft beer and like a big name in the craft beer revolution. So you know, Dogfish Head's cool. Uh, so we've got a thing that we decided to do. So there's not a ton of current events to talk about right now. Uh, AEW is still going on and WWE is still going on, but you know it, it's it's in this kind of weird 
AW's got the, they finally announced the mid-card belt, and they got a tournament going for the TNT Championship. Uh, That's a nice cross-promotion there. And, uh, you know, they needed a mid-card belt real badly to give the mid-card something to do. Um, So, you know. What do you got for that? uh, Not Cody. I've got not not Cody. Cody. Uh, I think realistically, uh, I would would think Darby or Sammy makes the most sense. I'd like to see Dustin, at least in the finals. I think that Sammy would make sense because they don't have a heel champion. That's true. Yeah. So I feel like Sammy and and they clearly are high on him, and, and him and Darby can fight over it for a while. And WWE's got the lead up to Money in the Bank, but uh, I, I don't know. It, it's eh. it's not that it's I'm, I I don't not we, care, but I kind of don't. We're a little you know. far. I mean, we just got over WrestleMania, so we're still a little hungover from that. Um, yeah. We don't know what's going to happen next week, so we might as well just approach it one by one. We'll uh, we'll cover it more so as it gets to the final card and we know what's going on. Yeah, if it's even happening, still at this point, which I imagine it is. But yeah, and and uh, I mean, to my knowledge, like NWA, Impact, all that, they're not none of them are taping anything, are they? No, I don't think so. It's not, you know, Dynamite's still fun. There's some good matches. You know, Trent and Kenny had a match uh, a couple weeks ago that was great, and uh, Kenny had Kenny and Trent had a match in Japan that was when he went out. When he was still going as Beretta, I think after he left uh, Rapongi Vice with Rocky Romero, and it was like his highest rated uh, match on Cage Side. So they've got good chemistry. Like there's some good matches happening, um, but Dynamite is not must watch TV right now by any stretch. It's not bad, and I'm honestly impressed that it's still watchable. Uh, WWE, I really don't like how quiet they let the Performance Center be. But the point is, they're just not nothing. It's not really must watch anything right now no man i'm like i'm like 50 50 on it um now the rumor is is that they're still continuing these live shows because of tv contract disputes yes i have read now that. that might be vince jargon it might be legitimate i mean fox espn is certainly not punishing mlb for not coming out with any live content uh different scenario mm-hmm. um I guess they just weren't too appreciative of the fact that they're airing like pay-per-views and stuff like that. But um, I think there's a very big void for them to fill, of course. But at the same time, it's just like, I don't know. How can I preach people staying home and watching wrestling at the same time? That's really what it boils down to. And especially like it came out with some reports that, because I kind of assumed that there was some form of testing going on, but it turns out they're just like kind of taking people's temperatures, which isn't surprising, but it's definitely more like, yeah, I don't, I don't really think this needs to be happening. I don't know what AEW is and isn't doing. And I'm not a network exec. I don't pretend to know any analysis about TV, but I know that what, what we've read is basically something to the effect of, you know, if, uh, you know, MLB and NFL and NBA, you're not going to cancel those contracts. They're huge money makers, and they they garner massive ratings whenever they're on. So you're not really that worried about it. But WWE is a little different. Do I think that they'll punish the networks for you know? Do I think they'll punish Vince or Tony Khan? No. But I mean, what the fuck do I know? Maybe they will. Maybe they'll be like, no, I don't. We don't need to air this. So I mean, who fucking knows? Yeah. I mean, last thing I'll say is just that you know we are we are big proponents of free will on FFC. Yeah, and um, you know the wrestlers are up to this, and they want to do it, and that's fine. It's like where you draw the line, though, because apparently they had an on-screen in quotation marks character test positive. So that means if it's not a wrestler, it's an announcer or a referee. So you know, are you going to wait for two people, three people? I mean, when you know, who knows? 
Yeah, I mean, I I'm also a big proponent of uh, your free will can't put the people around you in danger, and is it responsible? You know, and also should we really be like, oh well, the wrestler said they're gonna do it, so that's fine. Like, you know, the shit wrestlers agree to do the shit that like Mick Foley's agreed to do or John Moxley's <laughs> agreed to do. I don't that's give a, a good fuck. Point. I don't give a fuck what they are willing to do at all. So point being, there's not a ton to talk about. So we had an idea for a thing. So we are going to be doing a three-part in-depth analysis of the royal families of wrestling uh, and basically just go through a history of North American professional wrestling all the way from its humble beginnings to where we are now. Uh, Because we got nothing but time, baby. Uh, (laughs) We've been talking about doing an episode about the territories for a while. And certainly some of the stuff that you're going to hear us talk about, we'll probably go to uh, in other episodes about, you know, going to a little more depth. uh, Because the reality is you're talking about something that is over 100 years old. And there's just you there's too much history to fill into three episodes. But there's going to be no real recent events talk. And this is what we're going to be doing. So, uh, strap in, <laughs> strap in. So, this is episode one, part one of FFC's inaugural Holy Shit, It's History series. <laughs> episode, episode one Territorial Pissings. In the beginning, there was darkness. North American wrestling began shortly after the Civil War uh, and involved athletes with amateur backgrounds performing at carnivals with carnies as their managers and promoters. Uh, and so, as one would probably expect, it existed as real wrestling matches, just with like some flashy costumes and personas and plants in the audience. And occasionally they'd, you know, fix a match. Uh, you know, they, they would dazzle with spectacle and flesh. But by and large, it was... Greco-Roman style wrestling or, you know, some hybrid of that they would perform at carnivals and fans would come in and challenge people and, you know, all that stuff. You know who, uh, speaking of the Civil War, do you know who was a wrestler back in his day and actually held some Illinois state records for a long time? I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess Honest Abe. Honest Abe, yes. Honest Abe was a, uh, a very highly respected uh, wrestler when he was growing up and uh, I'll have to verify but I do believe he had some state records <laughs> you know who else was uh, was actually an Olympic level wrestler was uh, Jefferson Davis ah. uh, I'm lying Jefferson Davis is a piece of shit <laughs> 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 um, so, so basically in the old days you had wrestlers you had the carnies who kind of acted as promoters uh, and, you know, everybody kind of worked together somewhat harmoniously. As time progressed, wrestling in North America became dominated by a man by the name of Frank Gotch. Uh, no relation to Carl. But Frank Gotch... Uh, Wait, what? Really? No relation. Okay. No relation. Huh. Uh, none at all. No, not like a kid. No, nothing. Right. Uh, but Frank Gotch is distinguished as being the first ever American to hold the World Heavyweight Wrestling Championship... After defeating its inaugural champion, Estonian strongman George Hackschmidt in 1908 and again in 1911. So back in those days, you know, you'd travel around, you'd go wherever. And eventually, you know, there became a a heavyweight championship in Europe. And then Frank Gotch won it when he beat him here. Uh, 
So wrestling became a stronghold in the Midwest, specifically in Omaha and Des Moines, uh, not too far from where Gotch was born in Humboldt. Humble Humboldt. And at its peak, uh, interestingly, wrestling was the second most popular sport behind only baseball in the decades between 1900 and 1920. Uh, so people were into it, you know, just a couple of big boys pinning each other down, getting each other into all sorts of predicaments, just really, uh, really greased everyone's gears. Um, you know, times big were farm good. boys. Yes, and times were good, but nothing gold can stay. Gotch's retirement in 1913, coupled with the public's open suspicion that wrestling might be fake. Uh, how dare they? <laughs> how dare they? You know, people in the early 1900s are just so fucking gullible, right? You got Friggin fucking you're taking fucking cocaine for the ghosts in your blood. Wrestling's <laughs> fake. <laughs> what a fucking oh, you see that, Charlie? I got this new Bay of Heroin, but I read in the paper today that the fights may be fake. Oh, chum, that's ridiculous. Take another hit of morphine, you're so silly. Uh, and it led to a dramatic decrease in wrestling's popularity. By the way, people in, in that age did not talk like that. That's a certain accent that I think was called like the transatlantic Yes, transatlantic speak. Yeah, it was like what broadcasters and like movie people did. Uh, but it led to a decrease in wrestling's popularity. And things were grim. Following this precipitous decline in professional wrestling, Three wrestlers stepped up to fill the void left behind by Gotch. Ed Lewis, Billy Sandow, no relation to Damien, who is no <laughs> relation to me, and uh, Toots Mont, who you might hear something about later. Mm. Or you might not. Uh, they were all accomplished wrestlers in their own right, and the three became known as the Gold Dust Trio, no relation to Dustin. Something that you notice uh, when you start going through the history of wrestling is that every gimmick and name has been taken. Everything is is like on its fourth or fifth iteration. Names, oh, like, the, like like the gorgeous, uh, the gorgeous guy, like the yeah. effem the effeminate male that like everybody it, hates, but like exactly. gets all the women. <laughs> and the, and the Nature Boy was like that wasn't Ric Flair's gimmick. Uh, it was Gorgeous George, I think was his name. I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, Nature Boy. No, no, no. Nature Boy was somebody oh, yeah. else. Oh, Gorgeous George. Yeah, Gorgeous George was a huge man. Um, we'll, we'll cover him. And uh, they they started what could be considered the first organized wrestling promotion. Uh, so the Goldish Trio, for the first time in North American history, wrestlers were united under a single promotion uh, and allowed to develop long-term feuds and and make you know consistent booking decisions. The trio also helped popularize tag team wrestling. They used time limit matches. Uh, they used to fuck with the referees to win. And in general, they crafted a more entertaining and flashy product. Uh, so you know, more of a predecessor to modern day professional wrestling. Uh, and the three enjoyed great popularity in the early to mid twenties, but a controversy in which their champion and main star Wayne Munn lost to Stanislaw Zabisco. No relation to Larry, although, God damn it. <laughs> although at least in this case, like Larry's inspiration for taking that last name was Stanislaw. So at least okay. there was like something there. Uh, and that was in a shoot, right? Zabisco just came in. He's like, no, I will win. And uh, he, he beat the shit out oh, of well, the of popular, <laughs> popular rookie. Right? He, he went into business for himself. And uh, it resulted in a series of decisions that left their power waning. Uh, but their legacy was to be solidified 20 years later, right? So before we continue, Ryan, we have any thoughts? Yeah, so this is just really like the Wild West of uh, wrestling here, right? Yeah, if you thought the territories, the Wild West, this was like nonsense. And this is why 
promoters are often referred to as carnies if like how Vince is called a carny or anybody really like if if a if a booker or promoter or whatever makes a decision you don't like you call it, it's like carny wrestling is because that is the carnies were the ones doing the booking and it was a bunch of fuckery and hot and uh hogwash so this was like ridiculous but the goldash trio helped kind of pave the way for what would come in its wake right so after they stopped it was Nothing else really came in to fill the void, but wrestling became somewhat more organized. But in 1948, Midwestern promoter Paul Penke George came together with Midwestern Wrestling Alliance founder Al Haft, big-time wrestling founder Harry Light. By the way, there are at least five different big-time wrestlings in Texas and Boston and fucking it everywhere. <laughs> Hard to I got an idea. We'll call it big time wrestling. Lovely, wonderful stuff. How about championship wrestling? We'll do that one next. Uh, 11-time MWA heavyweight and first inaugural NWA champion Orville Brown uh, and St. Louis promoter and future president of the NWA, Sam Muchnick. They came together to form an alliance amongst the various promotions of the country in which they would have a unified championship to go along with their own and would not compete with one another, but rather cooperate as the Goldust trio showed could be so effective, right? So there were territories in this time, but it again, this is the Wild West. You know, everybody's doing their own thing. It's very localized. Nobody, no real crossover. And everybody came up with their own championship. This is This is why when you're going through early NWA history, you'll have somebody that was... NWA World Heavyweight Champion, in parentheses, Alberta edition, or in parentheses, Texas edition. That's just, there were a thousand belts. Um, but by coming together, it created the National Wrestling Alliance, or the NWA. And with it, the true birth of the territory system. Now, under this system, promoters could only work within their set territory unless given permission by the board of directors uh, or territory heads or the promoters lest they suffer threats of uh, violence. And this... Oh, this, well. <laughs> and I, I, we're not kidding here. I mean, shit got fucking wild. Uh, and the champion in return would travel between the territories, working angles with local faces and heels. Uh, and promotions that refused to work with the NWA or, it, you know, promotions that left due to disputes became known as outlaw promotions. Again, right? You Goddamn think outlaw mug shows. <laughs> you think I'm talking about... Uh, you know, being silly about, oh, come on, threats and violence about wrestling. No, 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 chum. <laughs> Probably the most famous example of this, or one of them, would be uh, International Champion Wrestling. This is founded by Angelo Puffo and his two sons, Lanny and Randy. Ooh, I know those names. Randy might be a little more well-known by his adopted name, Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, so ICW had countless run-ins with the NWA affiliates, but perhaps none more famous than their spat with Continental Wrestling Alliance, uh, headed by Jerry Lawler. Uh, when in 1982, their main booker, Bill Dundee, pulled a gun on the Macho Man in a restaurant parking lot. Uh, according to what people, you know, according to eyewitnesses, Macho Man uh, summarily disarmed him and then hit him in the head with the butt of his own gun. Macho Man, we ain't nothing to fuck with. That is. And with and with all great wrestling angles, this resulted in a terrific star-making angle between Lawler and Savage, and that's kind of what rose Randy Savage to popularity. I know uh, that the crowds during this time, uh, especially in Jerry Lawler's Memphis uh, wrestling and uh, in Louisville, Mid-South, um, 
as told by Mr. James E. Cornette, is that the uh, the hillbillies used to come down from the Ozarks and watch these shows, and they were not privy to the nature of shoot wrestling. No. And it was real, man. People used to jump the barricades with knives. Corny mentioned on multiple occasions that he's, you know, he's had to get police escorts all the way back to his house. Uh, numerous death threats. It's a wild time. Kayfabe wow. was very alive and well. It it certainly was. Uh, and Kayfabe was developed as a way for the promoters and the carnies to talk to one another because even back, I mean, listen, even back in the 1800s, 1900s, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about showing somebody a 450 splash in fucking Mesopotamia. Right? <laughs> people, people had some hunches. So Kayfabe was like a way for people to talk in basically nonsense. So that nobody would know what the fuck they're talking about. Kizarni. Uh, you know, it's where you get the terms of all the wrestling terms that you hear today. You know, baby face, heel, shine, heat, and all that shit. Uh, so the NWA decided to make Luthez their inaugural champion after unifying Orville Brown's championship into the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Now, Orville Brown was, as I mentioned, MWA. Uh, they were He was the Midwestern champion. And Sam Munchnik worked in St. Louis. Uh, Luthez actually worked for one of the competitors. And this was kind of a way to get like a guy that was really chomping at their, at their heels, kind of a way to get them off their back. And, you know, let's just get him in instead of fighting them all the time. Originally him and Orville Brown were supposed to, you know, wrestle for the belt. Uh, but Orville Brown suffered a horrific car accident and like retired immediately. So they just gave it to him, gave the vacant championship to Luthez. And as nimble listeners may recall, I mentioned Luthez uh, last week or two weeks ago talking about uh, Ricky Dozan because Luthez was a big part of putting over Ricky Dozan in the eyes of the Americans as well as, and he put him over a lot in Japan. Uh, this will come up a little bit later, um, but just a little bit of continuity there. And so for a while, right, things were good. Uh, also, a little interesting fact. One of the main promoters and bookers in NWA was a lad by the name of John James Doyle. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he's one of the... And guess uh, what? No relation. No relation. No relation. I wish. He's, I wish. he's in, like, the Midwest, and he, he like, broke a couple records for Gates and uh, was, really good at, he was really good at setting up money matches, and then he got into a dispute with people and, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Oh, uh, Irish, Irish men in wrestling. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> Famous Irish-American wrestling business owners. Okay. Uh, I can't think of anybody else. So what do you know about this general time period of wrestling, if anything? Um, so what we're talking about, we're talking about like, uh, late fifties, early sixties. So, so we're talking about, this is 1948. Um, okay. let's, let's say through 56. Cause that's where I'm going to go to next. So that first inaugural, basically when the territory started, right. You know, anything about that era? Um, not much. Uh, I'm certain that the Titans of the day were Lustez, uh, killer Kowalski, I imagine was another individual. Mm -hmm. Um, who are some of the old guys? Uh, uh, Monsoon, I'm sure. Maybe he was a little, little later. Monsoon uh, was a Carl, little later, yeah. Carl Gotch. Carl Gotch was, yeah. Uh, superstar okay. Billy Graham, I think, Super was in that uh, area, but it's probably a little later in the 70s. A little later, yeah. Um, um, not much. I know that there was a lot of people chomping at the bit to become that main promotion, wasn't there? Yes, exactly. Um, 
So I'm going to get to a whole lot of those guys. But basically, the upper echelon there is, is somebody actually that you mentioned a couple of weeks ago as well. Vern Gagne yeah. was one of the top guys at the time. Uh, Pat O'Connor a little later on. So we'll talk about all of them in a second. But yeah, so this is this is basically now the territories are still out for themselves. But the idea is basically you work together. You don't go into other people's territory. You talk to them. You build connection in return. You get the champion comes in gives some shine right puts your guys over puts your heels down you get the you get a championship match in your area and Luthes was like a fucking superstar he was internationally known um largely this is because right so paul george pinky was the original nwa president but he stepped aside pretty quickly for sam muchnick and uh sam took the reins and and really grew the nwa from there so Luthes reigned for over six years straight consecutively well I guess, depending on who you talk to. Uh, and he became as close to like as an undisputed champion as anyone's going to get or anyone had gotten since the 30s because he would go to other territories and he would win their top championships and he would just unify and unify. And that's kind of how the NWA grew. And it's how he put other guys over and how he put himself over as the undisputed world champion. You know what I'm saying? Um, and he was big on international cooperation as well. So... You know, he became a bona fide national superstar, and this coupled with the dawn of TV and increased television access across the world uh, resulted in what is sometimes referred to as the golden age of wrestling, right? There was nowhere that NWA didn't have a reach. You know, uh, I mentioned Riki Dozan, right? Riki Dozan, uh, he built the JWA, Japanese Wrestling um, Association, in the mid-50s, like 56, Um he feuded with Luthez, a bunch of Americans went over, fought with him, right? So that was an, uh, an NWA affiliate. Now it's basically that that was the first promotion in Japan. So they were in at the, at the bottom. CMLL in Mexico, that was created under the NWA in the early territory days. So again, branching out into Lucha Libre. Lucha Libre, of course, is historic. That goes back way further than any of this, uh, but it's a way to unify together. Nobody nobody could compete with the NWA. There was just no one to talk to. Sound a little similar to today, perhaps. Um, but, you know, uh, aside from the fact that they were the big fish in the, in the very large pond, they also had some uh, <clears throat> less scrupulous methods of dealing with uh, labor disputes. <laughs> Shocked. Uh, I know. Imagine that. A uh, bunch of territorial white Americans not being super happy about uh, another guy wanting to go over. Now, this is what led to a Justice Department ruling in 1956. Oh, my God. <laughs> known as the Consent Decree. Basically, the NWA was found to be an illegal monopoly whose labor practices and territorial ways endangered the lives and livelihoods of countless individuals. And thus, they were told to cease all current operations as they stood and rework their bylaws so as to remain in compliance with antitrust laws. Now, this comes off uh, after years of the Justice Department really getting in their fucking ass about this shit and countless complaints. Because here's the thing. To some, the NWA are torchbearers. They're, they're people. The NWA founded... If you like wrestling today, it's because the NWA existed. It's because people like Paul George and Sam Munchnick and Luthez put in the work, Right. To others, the NWA was monopolizing everything in the country and terrorizing smaller guys that 
didn't want to be involved or didn't maybe didn't even just like some of the people, right? They were fucking bullies. They were gangsters in a lot of ways. So they were told, no, you, you violate antitrust laws. And basically, this was supposed to shut the NWA down, essentially, as you knew it. That's what the owners all figured, the board of directors. And Much Nick didn't want to fight this as he didn't want to expose wrestling as fake. Because, again, the people knew, but they didn't know. It's not today where, like, you, you know, wrestling's fake and everybody like it was still and it, it looked more real back in those days as well, because people really getting the shit kicked out of them. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> uh, but more importantly, he didn't fight this because he had a shit ton of political connections. Kind of nothing happens. They field countless complaints, one of them from Mr. Doyle, former Booker, talking about the same shit and. NWA bullying me and uh, nothing really happened after that. So the NWA just continued to do business as usual, albeit a, a little quieter. Now, 56 and the late 50s were kind of a big thing for the NWA because this was also coupled with another famous Montreal screw job. The first one, in fact. The first one? Yeah, the first one. Do you, do you know anything about another controversial Montreal happening? I do, actually. I you do, do because, okay. Uh, Mr. Corny covered it in the uh, uh, distinguishable series, Dark Side of the Ring on Vice. If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend that you do. Oh, is that what the first uh, the first episode is about? Is it about the this? first episode is about it? And, you know, I don't know if it's him going to business for himself, but Cornette never revealed the fact that he came up with the idea for the Montreal Screwjob involving Brett and Shawn Michaels because... They were getting frustrated at the fact of what they were going to do with Brett. Um, maybe we'll cover this one day in full, I'm sure. But the long story short, Brett was leaving WWF. Yep. He had the title. They had to get the title off him somehow. Vince was coming up with all different ways of how to get, get the title off him. It didn't matter. He just needed to do it. And they're all sitting in Vince's backyard trying to come up with the ideas. And Cornette was like, well, screw it, Vince. You know what? If you just want to get the title off him, just take it. It doesn't matter. Because, being the history buff that he is, he recalled the first Montreal Screwjob event in his mind. Okay. That's very interesting. So it's it's interesting to know that one of the architects, if not the architect of the, pop, you know, one of the most infamous uh, events in wrestling history, you know, knew his history, right? Cornette is a lot of things. Stupid? Uh, not one of them. The man knows his fucking product. Now, if I'm correct, it involved uh, Sam Mushnick's St. Louis promotion? Yes. So here's what it was, right? Luthez lost to Edouard Compatier uh, after a shoot injury. So back in the day, right, two out, of three, uh, two out of three falls matches were very common. They were like the way to do championship matches. To like fill out the so, cards, right? Yeah, basically, you know, people put on fucking clinics. Luthez and Ricky Dozan had like 60 minute matches everywhere. Uh, so a shoot injury led to Luthez, you know, tapping or, or giving up, whatever. So he lost. He lost the belt legitimately because at the time he was NWA champion. This led to the Montreal booker Eddie Quinn leaving an NWA meeting in St. Louis. Uh, and basically what he did is he used Carpatier's disputed title as bait to lure other promotions away from NWA. This ultimately worked, and it resulted in Carpatier losing to the other NWA golden boy at the time, Vern Gagne, in Nebraska. 
And that created the World Heavyweight Championship of Omaha in 1958. Uh, so, but yeah, that and that's what it was. So the NWA just didn't acknowledge it. They're like, no, 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 he didn't happen. At first, they were going to make it into a storyline. They were going to make it into, oh, well, who's the real champion? Classic, right? Classic. Who's who's the real title holder? Who really deserves it? But then when Eddie Quinn left and and they and broke off of that they just pretended that it never happened so this was kind of the start of a little bit of crumbling of the nwa's centralizing power right this break in nwa leadership directly led to the creation of at the time nwa's stiffest challenger the american wrestling association now like i said the consent decree decree didn't stop nwa from doing shit didn't stop the territories from being what they were but they couldn't be as open about trying to squash other promotions if they didn't want to work with them. So Gagne created the AWA. Kind of like, you know, the old Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, and then like the Universe Soul Circus, right? Yeah, essentially something like that. And basically what happened was in 1960, Minneapolis is the ter- uh, the Minneapolis territory demanded that the current NWA champion, Pat O'Connor, who was legitimate NWA champion and beat the guy who beat Luthez, uh, they demanded that he face Gagne to decide who is the true champion. And what they said is, if you don't fight Gagne within 90 days, we are going to declare him AWA heavyweight champion. But they knew that that NWA would never agree with this because they pretended this other belt didn't exist. Very similar in a way to, you know, we created the Inoki Genome Feder- uh, Foundation and had the other IWGP heavyweight championship belt, right? The IWGP oh, and uh, Because of Lesnar, right? Yeah, it, because Lesnar held it. And so New Japan was just like, okay, that's not the real belt. It's not, that's not our lineage. All these Nebraska so boys causing problems, bro. I know, it's some real shit, right? So they knew it was never going to happen. And as such, uh, Gagne was named the first. It, well, not the first. Pat O'Connor was the first because they acknowledged him as champion. You can't be champion if you don't beat the guy who is champion. Uh, but he was like the new AWA heavyweight champion, and the territory now called itself American Wrestling Alliance. Gagne was immensely popular, right? And so the AWA forged relationships with uh, a bunch of existing territories, and the NWA struggled through leadership issues. Much Nick stepped down as president in 1960. And it is in this vacuum that another break happened, one that was probably smaller in scope at the time, but would prove to be the most devastating. But before we talk about that, to go back to talking about who were the top guys at the time, right? You had Luthes, of course, from the St. Louis area. You had uh, Vern Gagne in the Chicago area. And Pat O'Connor, who worked Canada circuit, and he was a New Zealander. Now, of course, this is not the full list of of top guys but these are just like a couple of them right now pat worked a lot with maple leaf wrestling located in montreal but a few clicks from there was a different man who was incredibly over with the ladies and previously feuded with lou and Vern. that man as you mentioned was the legendary Stu hart so Stu helped establish klondike wrestling in edmonton Right, and this is as NWA spreads into a bunch of other territories. So this is in Canada, far north, and it's in, and it's it's here that he starts. He purchases the Heart House and he develops the Dungeon. Now, Stu was never a top guy, right? He was over as hell. He's popular. He never held any major championship in NWA, right? 
think of him to compare him to someone, I don't know, who would, who would you say is like a modern comparison to that? Someone who always did the job? He didn't even necessarily do the job. He went over. He just never really went over on the champions. He was very over. He was well-liked. He was respected. But he just was never there himself. A good example in New Japan, for example, might be Tamahiro Ishii. Uh, is one good example of a guy that like is well-respected, puts on bangers, he's over, but he's never, he's just not viewed at that level. Same thing as Hiroki Goto. To talk about WWE, maybe you want to say that's a guy like Dolph Ziggler. Like yeah. when, when Dolph won the championship. For sure, work, just like a workhorse type uh, went over. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, probably Mick too. Yeah, Mick is a good example. Like it's, and and even they won something that Stu never won, but just a guy that was well respected, but he wasn't the guy. That's why you know, and people knew that about Mick Foley. That's why, um, that's why WCW felt so comfortable in jabbing him when he won the championship on the night of the finger poke of Doom. So, oh, that'll put butts in seats, right? But so Stu was very over. Uh, and most importantly, he was incredibly talented as a coach, uh, probably much more than he was in the ring. Um, and that's what helped propel him into the upper echelon of individuals in that time, especially uh, eventually he purchased in Alberta territory and merged it with Klondike to create big time wrestling. I told you the name fucking pops up everywhere. Big time wrestling. Uh, but that would eventually become Stampede. Ah. Stampede could get its own episode. Like we said, we're talking, we're stretching to so much history. Stampede could get its own fucking docuseries, honestly. But that's where the, that, the, their dojo was the, the Heart Dungeon. It's legacy on wrestling, immeasurable, just like Stu's legacy on the wrestlers that came after. Ryan, you want to you wanna give a minute talking about Stampede? Stampede was so incredible in the fact that you know, it still felt today because Stu deserves a lot of credit for bridging the gap between, uh, you know, American, North American wrestling, uh, certainly with the uh, Japanese community mm -hmm. and certainly with the pageantry of the Lucha Libre. He was, is responsible for bringing those guys over because, you know, all those guys wanted to train with Stu. Mm -hmm. And he's trained countless individuals from both of those promotions. And, you know, a lot of North American promotions just focused on their areas, but he was more interested in the fact of, you know, taking this little tiny oil cowboy town in Canada uh, and, you know, making it a landmark spot on the map of the territorial days. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, one of the most notable people that he trained in Japan was Shinya Hashimoto, one of the three musketeers, one of the most uh, legendary NJPW wrestlers. Um, but I mean, you could honestly, you could fill a fucking hour and a half just talking about wrestlers that came through the dungeon. It's immeasurable. One of those wrestlers was Jack Atkinson later owner of World Championship Wrestling Alliance, but at the time, a tag wrestler with his um, kayfabe brother, who went by the name of Fritz von Erich. Fritz and Waldo were villainous Prussian Nazis uh, who became big not just in Canada, but in Muchnik's own St. Louis. Just remember those names, folks. Just remember that. Now, to go back, right? 
there was another split that happened that was a little more important that was smaller at the time but incalculable in what would happen so that would be the split between capital wrestling and nwa ryan do you know anything about that i do may i uh take you back a little bit take us back Damien, does the name Tex Rickard mean anything to you? I feel like he'd be best friends with Doug Dimmedale. <laughs> Doug Dimmedale. Well, they're all both from Texas, so. Tex Rickard was a North American hotel and casino magnet, and he owned many locations throughout America, particularly in California, Alaska, and Nevada. Uh under the name Northern Saloons, um, you know, we have a very fine history of propping up our hotel and casino magnets in this country. Sure. Um, but. <laughs> but a uh, proud anyway. history, damn it. So Tax Record was a American boxing promoter after he got his fortune in the hotel industry. Uh, he's famous for being the owner and founder of the New York Rangers. Hey, that's the team Ryan likes. That's your favorite team, right, Ryan? Oh, yeah, my favorite. Ryan loves the Rangers. He's also known as being the man to build the third incarnation of Madison Square Garden. Mm, That's my favorite one. Now, this isn't uh, the original Madison Square Garden in Madison Square Park. It isn't the current one, the round one in Penn Station. This one was located on 40th Avenue in between 7th and 8th Street. Uh Kind of like a Hammerstein ballroom. Okay. In vain of that. Uh, he used to host many shows there. The Rangers played there, obviously. Uh, the Knicks played there. Uh, St. John's played there. But they also uh, housed many famous boxing uh, matches in the back of the day. And a man by the name of Roderick James McMahon, known as Jess McMahon, used mm-hmm. to run professional shoot wrestling matches there. Uh, Jess died um, around the 50s, and his son, Vincent Sr., took over. And he eventually ran those shows out of the old Mass Square Garden, and it started the old WWWF. Now, <clears throat> talking about this split between capital, right? So capital was a territory of the NWA, right? Everybody Correct. worked together. But... What is it that caused the split between Capital and NWA? What what create what ended up forming the WWWF? So in '63, uh, Buddy Rogers was facing Luthez. Now, do you know the interesting thing about Buddy Rogers, which I alluded what? to earlier? Buddy Rogers was the original holder of the Nature Boy gimmick. Yes, was there one before him? It's possible. Because this is like what we what I was saying, man. Wrestling gimmicks, they just you think you're original, but you're not. You're not. Well, you know what else Rick also borrowed from Buddy Rogers was, right? What? The figure four. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he's he's straight up just like, no, it's mine now. And and even going a step Which further. Which kind of fits Rick's character, no? Sure, sure it does. He's the dirtiest player in the game. And even to take it a step further, Gorgeous George is just essentially what Ric Flair was. That's just what the Nature Boy character was for Ric Flair. Just a guy, I think Gorgeous George's uh, big quote was, 
win if you can, lose if you must, but cheat at all costs. That's yeah, there that's you perfectly. Go. And still a figure four. Yes. So Buddy so Rogers during, and Lou. Yeah, during this time, Roger suffered numerous injuries. Uh he sustained an injury in Montreal to Killer Kowalski. Mm-hmm. He sustained an injury to Carl Gotch. Mm-hmm. So they had to do. They had to figure out where they're going to do with these multiple title switches. Yeah. Upon his return after the injury to Killer Kowalski from Killer Kowalski, uh, the NWA voted to switch the title back over to Luthez because they disliked Rogers. They thought he went to business for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't like working with him because he always wanted to go over. Yep. So on January 24th, 1963, the match took place in Toronto. Rogers, of course, was hesitant about dropping the title. So promoter Sam Machnik put three safeguards in place in order to guarantee Rogers' cooperation. The first of being, it was a one-fall finish rather than the famous two out of three, as you mm-hmm. alluded to earlier. The second was that he was going to give Rogers' bond a deposit away to charity rather than giving it back to Rogers. And the third one was that every NWA World Heavyweight Champion was required to pay a $25,000 deposit to the NWA Board of Directors before winning the belt. And he said that Thez would take the title away from him by any means necessary if he didn't agree to these uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, Luthez won the title. Yep, third and final reign. So Capital wasn't too happy about this. Both men left the company in uh, dispute of this because they thought that it, it did not go well and it wasn't handled well. So they went to go form the WWWF. And if memory serves, I think Toot was there with Vince Sr., right? Toot Mom. That was with Vince Sr., yes. Yeah. So... Now, at the time, shit like this happened all the time. Literally, it just happened. It it happened in Montreal. This type of shit happened. At the time, you don't want to lose a territory, but probably wasn't seen as the end of the world. But this, of course, has unspeakable... I mean, (laughs) this is the moment where shit changed. Now... Throughout now, this is in the sixties, right? Mm-hmm. So WWWF returned back to the NWA quietly in nineteen seventy one. But in between that time, right, their top guy was Bruno, right? Bruno San Martino. That's correct. The, and, uh, what they specialized in because they were in the the glitz and glamour of the city is that they really specialized in like the the working class blue collar immigrant heroes. Yes. Uh, you know, Bruno San Martino, another name you may have heard was, uh, Pedro Morales, mm-hmm. you know, something that you wouldn't really see during that time within the segregated community. Obviously New York wasn't like that, but they sure certainly had their share of, uh, you know, issues regarding that, but they really, they really, you know, there isn't a, uh, Italian American family who lives in New York that doesn't know Bruno San Martino. Yeah. And you know? Bruno was what was what were his combined reigns it's like 2900 days or some shit yep over 2500 days was his combined reigns not stray but combined reigns it's like it's an unthinkable amount by today's metric kazuchika okada is the only person that really comes close to today's uh 
to, to anything like that. And I think we've mentioned this before. It's still like maybe half. Of, right. Of just imagine if Brock Lesnar had a seven year reign with the heavyweight title. Yeah, he just never stopped. He was like, it's. it's Which kind of kind of feels like now, but you know, just imagine like no Seth, no nothing in between. Don't you feel like, like Brock's not even champion, and I still feel like he's he's secretly still champion. He's he's yeah, like the no, boogie, he's true. like the boogeyman. He he only let you have the belt. Um, and so. WWF returned back to NWA in 71, basically because by this time, right, throughout the 60s, times were kind of tough for the NWA, but Sam comes back as NWA president in 1963 and he starts scouting, right? And it's less that the WWF was not successful, but it was just easier to do it with other people and Time goes on and you realize yeah. there's money to be made and just cooperating. I think a lot of this had to do with the rise of television as well. You know, mm -hmm. uh, in the New York area, you, you could only pretty much get, you know, MSG fights. Yeah. Uh, the MSG network was started because of all the events that happened there. And one of them was always mm -hmm. uh, wrestling at sat on Saturdays, if I recall. Yeah, Saturdays, Sundays were popular. Mm -hmm. and we're talking like primetime cartoon time. You had fucking wrestling. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so it just it was just easier, I think, is my and like I said, there's money to be made, man. Money, money talks. So, Munchnik takes back over as NWA president in 1963, and he starts scouting for new talent. Right in Texas, Western State Sports that was ruled by their three-time champion Dory Funk and his children, future NWA heavyweight champions Dory Jr. and Terry Funk. Uh, Dory Jr. notably has the second longest uninterrupted reign of any NWA competitor at four and a half years. Honestly, that was surprising to learn. I would have figured Terry was the guy. Well, first off, I'll be completely honest. Had no fucking idea Terry Funk was wrestling that long ago. Honestly, had no idea. I think the crazy fact is that Terry Funk had his first retirement match like the year Undertaker was born or something like that. What? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, obviously everybody knows who Terry is just because, you know, he, at least in this era, you know, he revolutionized, he revolutionized himself as like the hardcore legend when he had so yeah. much history behind that. But, you know, Dory is probably, if not the most respected brother of all the people he trained. Yeah, no, I'm, and it's, uh, so that was surprising to learn. And so the Funks were all over Texas and they were big fucking deals. But Western States also gave rise to Harley Race. Harley Race would feud with Dory throughout the 70s. And what's interesting about Harley Race's first reign as NWA champion, right? Harley Race, for those that don't know, because we are talking about a lot of... Now we're starting to get into the realm of, of guys that you could even have still seen on TV not that long ago, even if they were just showing up. But Harley Race died a couple years... Uh, one year ago? Two years ago? A few? Last year. Last year, yeah. Uh, Harley was legendary all throughout NWA, another pioneer of the time. And... Kind of like another guy we're going to talk about later um, in just a few minutes here. Not a guy that looked like a wrestler. Uh, that's what you notice about a lot of these old school guys. They were just fucking big. It's not to say that there was not chiseled physiques or that we didn't. You know, people have always marveled at marbled, right? Uh, but you're just a, you know, just a blue collar guy that beat the shit out of people. And he got his first reign because Dory 
refused to drop the belt um, to Jack Briscoe, I believe. Um, he said he got into like a car accident. Yes. A truck accident. Sorry. And so what's interesting here, though, is that so Dory refused to drop the belt to Jack. So he said he couldn't wrestle because he was in a trucking accident. But they really just didn't want to drop. He just didn't want to drop it. Basically, his dad didn't want Dory dropping it to another face. So he had Harley come in, and that's where the Mad Dog persona was born. And you mentioned taking the belt off of anybody by any means necessary. That is the story they told for Harley was take the belt off of him no matter what. And I think it's like he restarted a match and took the belt from him. It's interesting with Harley Race. I mean, you know, when I think of NWA, I think of Harley Race, you Mm -hmm. know, the quintessential title holder. Uh, he had a few um, incidents like this in his in his uh, life. He overcame polio as a child, which first and foremost, if you know anything about polio, the fact that this guy became one of the most legendary wrestlers in the world is quite something. Yeah. Uh, he was kneed in the back of a head after a football match in high school, which caused him to black out for two days. Oh, wow. And yes, he was in a car accident. He broke his back and leg. So that was Texas, right? In Florida, the Briscoe brothers, Jack and Walter, they were all over championship wrestling. They feuded with all the funks throughout the better part of the 70s. Uh, the Von Erichs worked in Texas's other main promotion. Would you like to guess the name? Big Time Wrestling? Big Time Wrestling! <laughs> it was so fucking hard to keep this straight. I was like, wait, they all were... How'd they get the patents and licensing for this shit? <laughs> patents and licensing. Come on. Ain't nobody dealing with the government. They're trying to go out there NWA for being a monopoly. They didn't get up big time wrestling. <laughs> like, who who we got a tax here? So later, that would become World Class Championship Wrestling, which was uh, owned by Fritz. He got in on the ground floor. The Von Eriks, we'll talk a little bit more about next episode, because at this point... So Fritz, again, a guy that was over, never really, like, I think he won the big one in Texas, but I don't think he was ever NWA champion, and Fritz wasn't a big, as big a deal as his kids. Um, You know, I, I was talking to my dad about Fritz, because I wanted to find a little little backstory for him, and it wasn't necessarily him known being as a champion, it was really known about him being a heel. Oh. Because Papa, as Papa he, Doyle had opinions? Fritz von Erich was a Nazi. Yeah, <laughs> Prussian Nazi. I mean, it, it was akin to the you know the Iranian terrorist, yeah, the gimmick that you know Iron Sheik portrayed, and mm-hmm. you know that, and it was pretty pretty ballsy of him to come out wearing a red cape with an iron cross on the back of it. Fucking Zeke Island and shit. He, he um, did the goo- he did the goose walk on the apron of the ring. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, and his big finish was the iron claw. So I I thought that you know there's always business in a gimmick in wrestling no matter how good or how bad he was big in japan the iron claw like you said like that's his move that became a big move in japan most recently you saw it in lance archer with the edb claw the ebd claw being the uh the aficionado that you are is the iron claw usually reserved to gaijin wrestlers in uh japanese wrestling so that's an interesting question now i can't profess to have watched a shit ton of old time wrestling. I have been doing a lot of catching up specifically in new Japan with the older guys. Um, I have not seen anyone else use the iron claw yet. 
would not shock me if I would think it was probably reserved for top heels would be my mm-hmm. guess. And if you told me only Gaijin do it, that would make sense. Cause so far I've only seen Gaijin use it, but, uh, I'm going to keep doing research. And if I can, if I see somebody use it, I'll be sure to sell it out. Um, but so the Von Eriks are probably one of the saddest stories of, of families in wrestling. Uh, the, Kennedys, son, the Kennedys of wrestling, if you want to. The Kennedys of wrestling, yeah. Fritz's youngest son, Jack, drowned in a puddle at six years old in 1959 after being electrocuted. Um, we'll go into the rest of his family next episode, because like I said, the Von Erichs really kind of flourished in like the late 70s, like to the 80s on. So we'll talk about them later. But uh, Kevin and David were working there, and Kevin was successful. He would, re- he would wrestle barefoot. Uh, Kevin... I think is the only one that's still alive right now of, of Fritz's kids. Uh, and David eventually would move up to WWF uh, up North. Stu Hart's stampede wrestling was dominating the NWA Canadian landscape with men like Archie Goldie, who had 13 reigns as their champion, the Toronto edition and Abdullah, the butcher while training up legends, including two future stars by the name of Bretton Owen. They were not active yet. Uh, Brett started. I mean, they were, they were training. Brett had his first championship win. It, I don't know if it was the NWA Toronto belt or not, but he got his first one in 1980. Uh, across the sea. He was, also, uh, yeah. he was also tag team champs with his dad, if I'm correct, too, right? Oh, was he? Oh. Yeah, I think his first his first like big comeuppance in Stampede was that he was a uh, tag team title holder with his father, which I don't think has occurred ever again in wrestling. Dustin and Dusty didn't do it when they did that angle. Oh, you know what? It could be wrong. When they when they did the, I want to talk to you in front of God and the whole world. They didn't. They didn't win the championship. Yeah, no, you you are correct because that's where uh, Cody mirrored his promo against um, yeah. Dustin at uh, All In last year. On Anderson ain't nothing but chicken feed. <laughs> He's a look behind, and when you look behind. The view never changes, baby. Um, so across the seas, you had Peter Maivia, right? Peter, of course, um, the maternal grandfather of Dwayne the Rock Johnson and one of the heads of the legendary Inouye family. Now, something that you're going to see here, right? Old time wrestling, wrestling in general. When you talk about families, you talk about specific families. The hearts, the funks. You talk about the puffos, the big mans, of course. The Inouye family, though, that's something different. Peter was uh, NWA Australasian heavyweight t- uh, champion in 1964. Uh, his son, Rocky, um, worked in WWF and possibly later WWF, I think. Rocky Johnson? Uh, Rocky Johnson, right? He was definitely yeah. in the WWF at that point. Uh, Arthur? Uh, Tony Atlas was his partner. Yes. Um Arthur Anoa'i, or Afa, as he is known. Um, he was one of the Wild Samoans. Uh, so they were all working like in Canada uh, as well. So I talk about Peter was across sea, but eventually he came over and they all worked in like Stampede and, and Calgary and shit. You mentioned the Wild Samoans, right? With Afa. Yes. Do you know yes. who his partner was? His father, uh, not his father, Jesus Christ. Um, his name escapes me, but his it's it's Roman Reigns' father. Yes, Sika. Sika, there we go. 
Also uh, father to the late great Rosie. Yes. And uh I think and it's on that side that the Usos are in there because they're Roman's cousins, right? Mm-hmm. So like I said, you're gonna see this this family pops up and all over the place. And battle lines get drawn as we head into the last part of tonight's segment. Um but this family is is pretty particular to WWF and WWF. Speaking of across the seas, right? In JWA, right, after the passing of Riku Dozan, Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki were blowing Pro Rasu up. Uh, Baba was actually a three-time NWA champion for a total of 19 days, which is 19 days and three title reigns more than Antonio Inoki ever had. That bum. Please don't haunt me and kill me in my sleep. Uh, (laughs) uh, And though they would split to create AJPW and NJPW in 1972, both promotions maintained a working relationship with NWA. But to not be remiss, right? Almost left a big name out of this. Dusty himself, right? Dusty worked the NWA territories in the mid-70s, right? Uh, He worked with Gary Hart, actually. And he wrestled for WWF. He started in the late 70s. Uh... He challenged Billy Graham at parts, right? Billy Graham, one of the most well-known heavyweight champions at that time, uh, lost the Texas death match. Uh, Dusty was incomparable. I talked to you about Harley Race not having the physique of a wrestler. Dusty was just a fucking just a big boy. It was just a big, blonde boy. But let me tell you son something. Son of a plumber, baby. It's just the son of a plumber. But that man... Cut a promo better than anybody else. He wasn't the best worker in the world, but he was effective. And that man made you cheer for him, hate him, whatever you wanted him to do. You think of that promo with Dustin Rhodes, uh, his son, and he just holds up his hand when the crowd is screaming at the top of their lungs and just a hush comes over the place. Uh, The reason we're not talking a ton about Dusty, right? Dusty was working the 70s and 80s, right? Uh, He main evented Madison Square Garden, but he wasn't, it wasn't until after the next part of our story that dusty becomes who he was meant to be sam munchnik ended his tenure as nwa president for good in 1975 after calling atlanta the new hotbed of wrestling and feeling comfortable that he had returned his creation to its former glory uh the awa was faltering in the late 70s as gagne wound down and retired and the wwf changed their name to wwf in 1979 remaining dutiful partners with the nwa as NWA launched the first nationally syndicated wrestling program, uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Now, that was a TV show that was happening in 1972, but it was nationally syndicated in 1976. So things were good, man. You know, shit. NWA was back on top. Sam felt comfortable enough to retire. Um, But something happened in 1982. Uh, Yes, that's right. A few things. A few things happened in 1982, but probably the thing most interesting here is, well, Vince Sr. was old and winding down. And so somebody had to step up and take WWF's leadership role. So in comes his son, Vincent Kennedy McMahon. But he's the ring announcer. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy stuff. That's his son. Isn't that, isn't that yeah. just something? So, so Vince, Vince and his dad had a real contentious relationship. Uh, Vince didn't know that his dad was Vince Sr. 
Wait, really? Yeah. Vince did not meet his dad up until he was uh, out of high school. Uh, Vince grew up in a trailer park in South Carolina. They were very humble beginnings for him, which I think kind of shapes him into who he is today. You know what? This does actually ring a bell because doesn't I don't want to say idolize, but no, what there's something with his mom, right? He either has a really excellent relationship or a terrible relationship with her. Vince's mom is actually still alive. Yeah. But yeah. I'm saying he, he either it was I couldn't remember if he had severe issues because yeah, of how abusive she it was. Wasn't, right? It wasn't really necessarily her, although he has alluded to unfortunately being abused right right she didn't do enough to protect him yeah so but it was really his his stepfathers that he just absolutely hated right 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 yeah i remember an interview about this so so vince takes over in 1982 and well tell me a little bit about what happens once vince takes over because this is going to lead us into our last part here so vince senior didn't want to hand over the reins to him because he didn't think you know he knew enough about uh, you know, the old days, you know, the old ways of everything and how to conduct business amongst, you know, the current era of wrestling that's going on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he gave in. Uh, Vince started his own promotion company, Titan Sports, with Linda, mm-hmm. his wife. And Vince said, okay, you know what? You are, I think you might be able to do this, kid. But Vince Sr. gave him one demand. And do you know what that was? What was it? Don't buy the territories. Let the territories <laughs> exist as they are. Can, isn't it just something beautiful that uh, even back then he could be like, this kid might be big for his britches. Now I have two questions related <laughs> to this. Yes. How involved was Vince with the WWF coming up right so how old is he when he comes and takes over in 82 he's like 70 something now right yeah vince was about our age during this time 30 35 was he involved with the the company at that point vince was the michael cole of old wwf even back then that far he was the ring ring announcer he was you know on tv he would uh host the segments and you know the interviews with people he was definitely known I guess that makes sense, because the first WrestleMania was in, what, 83? Yeah, and, you know, Vince yeah, okay. was the announcer for many years, and it made sense why he held on to that role very much, because that's what he, that's what he is, you know, that's what he was known for, and I think he took great pride in doing that. Okay. He didn't have, you know, even when he started becoming the Mr. McMahon character, he was still doing a lot of announcing, yeah. and it wasn't, it wasn't really until that Royal Rumble where... Uh, Brett lost in when he flipped out on Vincent, when he flipped out on McMahon. Uh, you know, people didn't know. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, there were, there were videotape trading going on and, you know, yeah, story, yeah, yeah. like started like the, the beginning of like the dirt sheet era. Uh, but that was the first time Mr. McMahon was referenced as the owner of the WWF. Yeah. And, and my other question was, so did, Vince senior willingly give over the reins or did Vince jr. Buy him out? Like, how did it, how did that work? I think it was a mixture of both. I think Vince had, you know, Vince senior didn't really have a lot of time left and he didn't want to leave it to some stranger. So I think Vince kind of played his hand a little bit. Okay. And sort of like, you know, okay, he'll go over to Vince. Vince knows knows the boys here. Vince knows, Mm -hmm. you know, 
what it what it takes to get uh, a wrestling promotion in New York City done. You know, I mean, yeah. like I said, when it comes to wrestling promoters in New York City, there is no other name. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So he takes over, and and so yeah, so it's it's interesting that even back then, like he always had grand aspirations, and Anthony alluded to this too when he was on the podcast last week about how Vince wasn't really the one that wanted to expand it. It was, it was junior that, that moved that going. So he takes over and like I mentioned, Georgia championship wrestling was owned by Turner broadcast at the time. And in 1982, it decided to rename itself to world championship wrestling. And it was run primarily by the Briscoe brothers and Ole Anderson is the head booker. So Vince, now he's running WWF. He moved fucking quick, right? He started purchasing up other territories, time slots, and he he's had a relationship with USA Network since the 80s. So he, that relationship's been there forever. He, start, he takes up Southwest Championship Wrestling Sunday morning slot, turns that into All-American Wrestling, follows that up by purchasing Heavyweight Wrestling slot, turns that into All-Star Wrestling, as well as starting Tuesday Night Titans in 83, which I think was more of like a like a talk show type deal, right? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, he had like a he had like an old Johnny Carson uh type show. <laughs> which again show. plays off to the type of showman that Vince was. He and he enjoyed yeah. doing this and he saw the business in doing this, especially during that that uh cultural time in television. He knew yeah. he knew where the money was. Vince is many things. Uh, Vince is a ruthless fucking capitalist. He's a ruthless businessman with no regard for the people around him. It's all about expanding the brand. But the man knew what sold. And the man knew he saw what was happening and where wrestling needed to go before anyone else did. So Vince approached Ted Turner about getting the WCW slot as well. But Ted Turner's like, no, fuck off. Fuck you. So this event becomes known as what, Ryan? What we're about to talk about. Black Saturday. Black Saturday. All right. So Vince, after being uh, rebuffed by Ted Turner, approaches the Briscoe brothers, knowing that Ole is not particularly popular with his partners right now due to his management style and his booking. And Vince is able to convince the Briscoes to, uh, and their partner, Jim Barnett, to sell him the majority shares to the program, which allows Vince to circumvent Turner and turn the program into a highlight reel for WWF. Now, let me tell you something. The sheer fucking balls to go in there, ask for something, and then just... (laughs) He didn't just buy the time slot to make it WWF. He bought the time slot, the first nationally syndicated wrestling program in the history of the sport, going back 100 years almost, and he turned it into a fucking highlight reel. <laughs> it's it's so you it's look something. back you look back on it now and you're like that is Vince fucking McMahon. That is the most Vince McMahon. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Thing I've ever heard. uh and with that one simple purchase, the landscape of wrestling had changed forever. Well, you know what he did too, right? With the first uh, episode after he bought uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling, what did he do? He came on screen. Ah. So when that 
So did you ever hear Dusty go, 605 on the mothership? Maybe. That was his calling card in the uh, in the old you know WCW shows because it was on 605 Saturday nights. Huh. That's on TBS, which TBS was the first cable uh, station that got uh, shown across America, if I'm correct. Hmm. Okay. That's but yeah, cool. Imagine being a young Southern man during this time and you love your wrestling. The wrestling. Yeah. Love it. Love it like your mama's cornbread. And you, you turn on. <laughs> you have a hard day of work working with working with daddy outside. He's breaking it to the bone. But you got your opportunity. The day is over. You get to watch wrestling. You crack Six open a Budweiser. And, and then <laughs> there's Vince right on the screen. Young, chiseled Vince. <laughs> this Yankee telling you you bought up Georgia Championship Wrestling. Welcome, folks, to the new WWF program. You fucking throw your Budweiser through the TV. And <laughs> this changed things forever. How, you might ask. You don't have to wait till next week to find out. Because the next part of this story is a war story, baby. We're talking wars. We're talking attitude. We're talking New World Order. We're talking about Bretton Owen Hart. We're going to be talking about Kerry Van Erich and the rest of the Von Erichs. We're going to be talking about Dustin Rhodes. But the mid-80s gave rise to the most popular group of superstars ever put together up to that point. Next episode, we're going to be talking about the Four Horsemen. Woo! <laughs> so. That's the story up to this point. No legend killers this time, folks. So we're going to save doing, our treats? We're doing bits. We're saving we're treats. Bits. We're Save. doing bits. Uh, we want more. Mainly because the, we want to fuck around a little bit. We have time, finally, to do something we've wanted to do for a while. A little bit of long-term it's, storytelling. It's like the end of that one Twilight uh, Zone episode with uh, Burgess Meredith, who you may know as the trainer from Rocky. He's a wrecking machine. It's actually my favorite. It's my favorite Twilight Zone episode. It's the one when he plays like this down and out loser banker, and uh -huh. he's like terrible at his job and only wants to do is read. So you know, one day he's getting shit on at work, and like the bank manager's like, "All you want to do is read. Like you know, you're terrible. If you don't, you know, get your shit together by the end of the day, you're fired." Mm -hmm. So he's like, "Fuck this. I'm gonna take myself in the bank vault, lock it, and start reading." Well, as this happened. America was attacked by a nuclear bomb and it was nuclear apocalypse. So he, he looks at the watch and notice that he has to get home and he opens up the bank vault and the world is destroyed. And there's time now. There's time. I had time. However, we don't really want to uh, mimic the end of that episode because then it all goes to shit. <laughs> uh, don't worry. Right. No people love them. Some legend killer. We love doing it. Um, but I we'll felt give you two next week. How about that? We'll give, we'll give you two. two next week. I felt that the story kind of needed to take. Listen, we just went through a hundred years of wrestling history, a <laughs> hundred, and we're gonna dedicate the next two episodes to thirty to forty years of it. <laughs> Shit's about to get fucking intense, right? But I'm really looking forward to this because uh, 
just learning about this shit, this old fucking style shit that I've never paid any attention to. It's it's interesting stuff, dude. It's so interesting. And it deserves to be covered because, you know, which we certainly will. We're not escaping from it. You know, we've talked about the screw job. We talked about, you know, Rick and Dusty and the Attitude Era. But the golden age of wrestling doesn't really get covered and it deserves to be talked about. Absolutely. You got to know your roots. Yeah. And, and like I said, the more things change, the more things stay the same. The more you look back into the past, you, you see the future. Uh, yeah. Especially with wrestling, as you alluded to all these, you know, every gimmick has a past and it's certainly, you know. Yeah. Plus how many stories can you tell? How many stories can you tell that don't ultimately boil down to, well, I don't like you. Well, I don't like you. Well, I want to be champion. You know, it's, it, you can only tell so many different versions of that story. That's true. Uh, so next week, Attitude Era, Four Horsemen, Wars, baby. We're going to be talking about it all. And most importantly, you're going to be keeping the forefront of the royal families of wrestling in there. Okay? To wrap it all up, Ryan, what have you been listening to this week? Uh, I've been listening to the new End release. End? End, yes. Okay. Do tell. Pray tell. Uh, the ferocious band, uh, kind of like in vain of... Uh, you know, not as melodic as Mr. Signals is, but certainly that force that comes behind it. Okay. Just like that raw energy. Uh, their drummer is now ex-Dillinger drummer, Billy Reimer. Oh, cool. And you said it's a new release? Yeah, they just came out with a new release. What's it called? It is called... It's not called From the Unforgiving Arms of God. It's, no, that's not right. No, from the Unforgiving Arms of God was their last album. They have a single that they just released, and it's called Pariah, and it's fucking awesome. Oh, what's that? Okay, cool. Um, I have been listening to not like a ton. One of the bands that got me into like fast, abrasive, aggressive music like that, Nails, Unsilent Death. Uh, fucking love that shit. Good old Todd Jones of Terror fame. Uh, and I also went back and listened to a little bit of Insect Warfare. I only got that one album, but uh, uh, sometimes you just fucking need to hate a little bit. A little bit of Napalm Death. There was some Napalm Death in there. A little bit of Suffer. A little bit. Do you, fu- do you fuck with Seth Putnam and the old AC? AC? I got some love for AC. I got some time. I don't got a ton of time for AC, but I got some. Oh, you don't have time for their 35-second bit. <laughs> I, got, I got a little bit of time. Uh, a little bit of Discord and Saxis, too. All that good shit. Um, I've also been reading a lot of sci-fi. Lately, I just finished War of the Worlds, and uh, I'm reading The Martian right now on my Kindle, my 2008-era Kindle that doesn't have a backlight. It's have beautiful. you ever read Dune? Dune? No. Yeah, you should start reading Dune. Okay. People, people always ask, like, what's what's a, another series that kind of, like, encapsulates, like, the world, like Game of Thrones? That's where, one you of them. Know, Similarly, like what we're talking about with the territories of wrestling, you know, there's like eight different stories going on in one. Mm-hmm. Dune is another uh, great book to get into. Okay, cool. I'll definitely take that in. All right, so that's what we got for today. So we uh, we're gonna be rolling these out most likely weekly, as long as schedules permit, just because we've got the time right now. But as always, the card is subject to change. Uh, so. Until next time, for Ryan, for myself, this has been the most electrifying must-listen-to podcast in sports entertainment.
This has been FFC.